I have to admit, this is kind of a new experience for me. I, um, in, in my lifetime, I've had the opportunity to, opportunity to harangue crowds every now and then, um, but never sitting down, you know, that's, that's the, the difference tonight. I get to sit down while I harangue the crowd. Um, anyway, um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, uh, I was kind of a religious type, you know, the boring type that, uh, that you have to hang around with at school sometimes. But uh, during that time in my life, uh, when I was dating, I was kind of a religious type. Other people always noticed that too. I remember a conversation with a classmate about our respective churches. In our town, there were two large Baptist churches. One was rather liberal in its theology. The other one was definitely the fundamental, in the fundamentalist category. I belonged to the latter. When, when I told my classmate which church I belonged to, he responded, oh, the rock and roll Baptists. I got a similar response from a girl I was dating who I invited to attend church with me. I think, it was, I think it was our annual series of revival meetings. Every year we invited a different revivalist preacher for the series, then dragged in all our friends who we considered to be non-Christians to get their souls saved. It was one of the ways besides getting our theology right that we earned our own salvation. One year I invited a girl who belonged to a liberal church that I considered heathen. I think her dad was the pastor. <laughs> She got rather offended by one of the songs we sang at my church that went something like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There wasn't anything particularly wrong with the song, but it offended her sensitivities and got us into a conversation about the strange music we used in our church. One conversation led to another, and we ended up talking about eternal salvation, Hers in particular. It was clear to me at that time that there was something she needed to do to get saved. That was why I had invited her. It never occurred to me that God might be already trying to and working on saving her soul. Her response was that it also seemed strange that I was so concerned about personal salvation. It seemed clear to her that that, that was God's concern more than any human being's. The point that God is already doing the work of personal salvation in our lives is made pretty clear in this New Testament story. The oldest son of a wealthy shepherd topped the rise of a rural side road, and the scene he saw there froze his blood with anger. His kid brother, the profligate who had left home with a huge slice of the family inheritance, was receiving an embrace from their father, a welcome not nearly deserved by his selfishness. It had been five years since a younger sibling had left home with his slice of the inheritance, and in that short, very short time, he had squandered the lion's share. What is this tender reunion, the older son shouted as he rushed toward the two men, who should have been his dearest family but had become alienated by their rivalries. My eldest, the father shouted back with the joy of a parent reunited with a treasured offspring. Lucas returned to us. It's the one who we thought was lost. It's the brother of your youth. He's returned to us. Once more, we are a family, drawn again together by God and by God's love. God's love, hardly, came the elder brother's sarcastic reply. More like the poverty born of, of hard-earned cash spent on whores. 
Where is the inheritance you gave him? In the pockets of bartenders, saloon keepers, and cheap women who cared nothing for his family or clan. In the meantime, I have worked tirelessly toward uh, turning what wealth you have into a respectable herd. Where's my reward? Where's the inheritance I deserve? I'm the one who should be honored with a celebration. I see you're throwing a big bash for your lost party animal, and I don't get so much as a special dinner. Can't you see he doesn't deserve it? When have you done a tenth of that for me? If it weren't for me, you'd be in poverty yourself, but I have invested your remaining assets into something that has turned some profit, admittedly small, but growing. This is your flesh and blood, the father returned. How can you turn your back on him? He's right, the younger brother returned. I don't deserve a celebration. Truth be told, I'd be lucky if our father let me serve as a hired man. Oh, now we get the humble act. It's a little unbelievable in the light of the demands you made five years ago. The younger made no reply, just stared at his feet through the sandals made dusty from the road. Finally, the mumbled words came. Just take me in, if only as a slave. I'll do any job you ask. Patience exhausted, the elder turned his back on the reunited pair and continued down the road past them. In his last years, the open-handed father provided for both sons generally, but the elder never spoke to the younger again. He was too busy pondering the great rewards that should be coming to him. This theme of self-righteous claims on a heavenly parent's mercy is one that is repeated throughout Scripture and expressed in spades by King Hezekiah very early in the Bible. Admittedly, the king had every intention of serving the true God, and everything in his power to, did, did everything in his power to rid Judah of idol worship. The worship of Yahweh was the official religion of Judah. There were many locations where the people still worshipped gods of the powerful Assyrian oppressors. Though much weaker than the Assyrians militarily, Hezekiah led a rebellion against them. He removed the high places of Assyrian worship, worship, smashing the sacred stones that were venerated there. And he cut down the Asherah poles dedicated to a chief Assyrian deity. There was also a cult that had inadvertently been initiated by God's own prophet, Moses. When the Israelites had been wandering in the desert before their arrival in Canaan, they had been attacked by a plague of snakes in response, Moses had a bronze snake placed on a pole for the people's healing. The story goes that when a snake-bitten person looked at the pole, they were healed from the effects of the bite. Time passed, and the snake itself became an idol. The people gave it the name Nehushtan and began burning incense to it in acts of worship. Hezekiah also broke the bronze snake into pieces, so it would not be the object of idol worship. So Hezekiah began to see himself as a king of great righteousness, one that deserved enormous respect and reward for his personal dedication to God. It wasn't a huge leap then for him when he became sick to the point of death to see his healing as his just due, a reward he had earned for himself. He was overcome with self-pity when the prophet Isaiah told him he would not recover. He turned in upon himself and cried like a baby. 
demanding to be compensated for all the good he had done. But God didn't turn away from the self-centered king's demands. He had pity on him anyway and promised to bring about his healing. But not for Hezekiah's sake, it was for the sake of God's people. God's mercy always seems to be connected more to the people than any one person. God made it clear that because of the faithfulness of the earlier King David, Jerusalem would be saved from the Assyrians and 15 years would be added to Hezekiah's life. In my own experience, I'm tempted to make the same kinds of demands. I forget that God's mercy comes to God's people more than to any single individual. I look for my own healing and forget that God is at work healing all humankind. We so often look for our own healing and forget that God is in the process of renewing humanity. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I immediately began to pray for personal healing and lost track of the fact that God is doing the work of healing us all. So the king and the prophet Isaiah similarly started doing all kinds of religious rituals to prove to themselves that God would keep faith with the promise to heal Hezekiah. Isaiah called for a poultice of figs, a kind of medical religious ritual of healing to place on the king's infection. And, God's, and God honored the procedure despite the hocus pocus. Isaiah prayed for a shadow to move ten steps on the stairway of King Ahaz. And God honored that too. God kept providing signs just because we humans kept demanding them. But in Jesus' day, he quit giving signs. He made it clear that in his time, only a wicked and adulterous generation looked for a sign. But none would be given, he said in Matthew, except the sign of Jonah. And that means we have already been given any sign we need of God's work by all the prophets. There will be no magic tricks now to prove God is with us, no formula we must do to perform to receive God's grace. So this is a God of grace and mercy. This is about a God who loves every single human being who ever lived and is in the process of saving us all from Mother Teresa to Saddam Hussein. I don't know how God's doing it, whether in this life or the life to come, but we all are in God, on God's agenda. God created all of us for eternal life, and nothing will be lost, not one soul. I reflect on the young woman who attended church with me as a teenager and saying, singing, there is a fountain filled with blood. I'm clear that she knew something I didn't, that nothing created in God's image will be lost. God's business, without a doubt, is to bring every human to God's self. I see a loving father embracing his son on the road, holding back nothing of the affection he's always felt for him, pouring out a love that has no limits. This is the clear picture of God's grace, despite the son's disregard of his generosity. Grace requires nothing from the receiver, not even acceptance. A self-absorbed king lies in bed, weeps pious tears, and pleads for more years of life. When God's prophet predicts that all the treasures of Judah will be trashed and pillaged, the king doesn't care. He can only declare that if God gives him another 15 years, 
there will at least be peace and security in his own time. This is not the kind of grace God promises. Hezekiah sought an inward-focused selfishness. So what does God offer? A peace and security for all people, one that will begin now and continue into the life to come. Still, God does rescue Hezekiah for all time, and not just the selfish king, but all his people, the Jews and all humanity. Pam and I were married in our middle years at the height of excellent middle-aged health in 1994. It didn't take long, however, to realize that I had a moderate affliction of sleep apnea, a malady which meant that most nights we couldn't sleep together because my uproarious snoring kept her awake. A year later, while walking through an airport on a business trip, schlepping a variety of training materials, I became aware that I was developing a heavy-duty case of heart angina, which shortly thereafter began to threaten me with the possibility of cardiac attack. The threat necessitated the performance of double bypass arterial surgery in 1995. In 2005, my health afflictions were again complicated. The new issue emerged one morning as Pam and I sat on two sides of the breakfast table enjoying our usual, usual English muffins and eggs. She became aware for the first time that my right thumb was trembling slightly, not enough to cause alarm, but enough to catch both of our attention. Two visits to the neurologist's office revealed that I was afflicted with the early stage of Parkinson's disease. One of the health issues that many older men experience is prostate cancer. And the problem didn't skip me. Because of the disease, I had my prostate removed in 2006. The bad, news is, the bad news is much of the cancer had already metastasized through other areas of my body. It can be controlled, but probably never completely. The last fiend to strike my aging body was congestive heart failure, which appeared on the scene in 2008. So where is God's grace in all of this? I can with no doubt at all say that it has been there all along in the form of unrequested gifts. I have, of course, prayed for the obvious things, just as Hezekiah prayed for 15 more years. And my confidence is growing through the years that God is giving me and all people eternal life. But the most obvious graces I am receiving now are the relational ones. I have not necessarily requested them. I may or may not get 15 more years on this earth, but every day I receive the blessings of family love and friendship in multiple quantities. I have a wife, children, dear friends, and grandchildren who love me, and life is the best it's ever been. These are, the, these are the graces God is giving to all humankind. God has promised us eternal life. But in this life, even with the pains and sufferings we all experience, we can count on the joy that comes from love. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. 
But the greatest of these is love. I've been noticing that more lately. 